I want to go to a conference sometime where we just like just sit there, drink, come up with storylines, and that's it. You know, kind of how I treat conferences. That's what I mean. minus, <laughs> minus the storylines. Welcome to the Two Authors Chat Show, an entertaining podcast with two best-selling authors connecting readers with an eclectic array of distinguished guests through lively conversation and interviews. Hosted by mystery suspense and thriller writers, Douglas Pratt and Nicholas Harvey. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our podcast with myself, Nicholas Harvey, and the prolific Douglas Pratt. Prolific means sexy, right? Not really. A prolific amount of thinking about sex. Prolific. Well, maybe, yeah. (laughs) How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm not as good as you because, well, I do have a release out, but you have your uh, new release, Golf Dreams, out there. How's it doing? Oh, yes. Actually, came out this morning. Uh, Doing great, actually. Uh, Looking at climbing the charts as we go. Uh, Maybe while we're out here, somebody will buy it up, send it on up to number one. Kind of competing with you today, too, with uh, Faceless out there, right? Yeah, yeah. So Faceless came out this morning, and uh, the audiobook will be uh, – we just finished the QC on that. We were trying to get it out at the same time, but it'll be probably 10 days behind the uh, the book. But uh, Faceless is the Tropical Authors collaboration with AJ Stewart, who also just had a, a new release, and he, he's up there in the charts, too. And our mate Nick Sullivan, who was on the show um, – the last show with us. Yeah, and he's coming down to see me in a couple of weeks. So, so y'all are getting the y'all getting the audio book out on pretty close. It always takes forever to get audio books done. So, yeah, Ed, I never managed to get my um, audio books for my uh, Nora Summer series out on time. Although I've been releasing them as I release the books, it's just a tight squeeze on the uh, publishing schedule we have to give the uh, narrator enough time to get it done and then QC. Readers are always asking why does it take so long. I think that they don't realize how long it takes to do the. Uh, the pre-production and the recording of the audiobooks and everything. Both of our narrators do a really great job, and man, it you know it's a lot of time to do that. So it is, and then it sits with Audible for a period of time, uh. and and they're a, that's a lottery. I mean, they can QC check it and clear it in a couple of. I've had one in three or four days, and most of them take two weeks, which is supposedly their maximum. But yeah, Kim Breton, my uh, my narrator, is doing faceless for us. So awesome. I can't, yeah, I'm excited she's doing it. What else have you been up to? Well, I'm uh, working right now since uh, between really any projects, I kind of jumped back into Missing in the Keys with you, uh, working to get that finished up in the next couple of weeks and uh, started up on my uh, my next series, uh, which was the Corsair series with Playa de los Muertos. So uh, both of those are rolling along pretty good. How about you, sir? Well, by the time this uh, this show airs, we'll be a matter of two or three weeks away from the release That's of Missing in the yes. Keys. So we probably ought to finish writing it, don't you think? We should, yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good job we're not planning an audio book of it right now. <laughs> well, we've already proven why we're not going to do that. So um, <laughs> we definitely need that. So, if, yes, if you're listening to this right now, you should grab uh, Missing in the Keys right now on pre-order. It helps pay for our podcast so you can hear us. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not We don't dissuade people from buying it. Maybe they're like, hey, if we don't buy it, they'll shut up. What have I been it's up true. to? So, <laughs> yeah, what, what have you been up to? Sorry. What have I been up to? Let's move on. Oriverdi, uh, which is my next release in the Age of Bailey series, comes out uh, on the 25th, and that's in the final editing stages. And that's all gone gone really well, so I'm pleased. I'll be, I'm starting uh, Losing Summer 
the next Nora Summer book. So I'm doing the plotting in early stages of that. And I'm going to try and get myself ahead because then when Sully comes down in a couple of weeks, I can sneak off and go diving with him for the week that he's here. And diving-wise at the weekend, oh man, it was um, it's actually raining here today in Bonaire, which is much needed. It's been really dry. But we got out and uh, with the wife, Cheryl, and she picked a couple of dives that uh, iconic kind of dives that we hadn't done yet while we were here. One was a drift from one site, which is actually a boat site. You have to jump off a cliff, which sounds crazy, awesome. but it's actually, yeah, it's not really a cliff jump. It's about four feet into the water, but, <laughs> but either way, you, when yeah, you jump in, you, that's still you a can't lot of, get back out. You, you have a lot of gear on when you're jumping four feet. People are like, oh, it's only four feet, but that's a lot of gear on you. Diving. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it can be a yard sale if you're not careful. But you, when you jump, once you're in, that's it. You can't get back out again at that spot. Yeah. So you're you're committed to the drift dive, and you drift to the next dive site down, which is a shore dive site, and it was magnificent. Oh my god, it just this absolute sheer coral wall for the first part of it, and uh, you kind of cruise about a hundred feet, and then stage up. And then try and guess where the other site is to come out of the water. <laughs> there's no, there's no signs under there, so you kind of have to. Uh, no, like, I bet, yeah. Uh, kind of figure it out as you go. But uh, yeah, that was fantastic. And then we did uh, Salt Pier, which is uh, if anyone's been to Bonaire or read about diving in Bonaire, they've heard about the Salt Pier. And it's just uh, surprisingly, it's a pier, but it's a pier that goes out, and it, it's it, it's a conveyor belt on top of this pier, and it's it's um, they uh, produce salt here, they, you know, salt flats, right? Uh, the ship comes in, docks up on this sort of the T end of this pier, big ships, and the conveyor comes on and dumps all this salt crystals into into the holds. And so you can't dive it when there's a ship in there. When there's a ship not uh, getting loaded, you can go dive around the, the pillars of this pier. And there's uh, and it's a pretty big structure, so there's pillars everywhere down there. And it's not very deep. I think the deepest we went was 55 feet. But there's just life everywhere down there. It's amazing. Yeah. So we had uh, – That's awesome. Yeah, longest dive uh, we've ever had. I mean, it's pretty shallow. We were, like I said, 55 at the deepest. I think we averaged about 25 feet, but we, we dived for two hours continuously. When I came out, yeah, my, my back was killing me when I came oh, out. Oh, man. Hungry, man. Diving oh, always my makes me hungry. God. <laughs> we had lunch packs, so we just sat on the back, came out, stripped the gear off, sat on the back, and uh, mowed everything we had in the uh, cooler for lunch. Yeah. And that's, that's probably the best lunch you can have is right after you get out of diving, I think. Oh, so you're always so hungry. It doesn't yeah. matter what it is. It, you just eat it up. So if, if you guys aren't looking at his uh, Nick's Facebook page, his videos and stuff from these dives are amazing. So I think Cheryl does most of the videos, but, you know, yeah, she does most of the shooting with our GoPro underneath there, and and, um, and she's the incredible fish spotter. She finds all the uh, little critters that you'd normally just swim right over and never see. Um, she's brilliant at that. But, yeah, she does a, a great job with the videos. Yeah, and so I, on my Facebook page or I have a YouTube channel, which I've been neglecting lately, but I have bunked a couple up there, and they've got some past uh, videos from trips like Cuba and Cozumel and stuff in there. So if you like that kind of thing, it's worth it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So. All right, so let's dive into a little thing that we've decided to do called One Star All Stars. So as authors, well, as readers, everybody is a reader. When you buy a book, you get to put a review on uh, places like Amazon and uh, you get to say what the heck you think. 
That's right. Yes, and some of them are yeah lovely, and and we actually get a lot of a lot of great reviews from readers. But then sometimes you get some that are <laughs> like, "Did you read the book?" Or okay, that's fine. Or maybe you're just a mean asshole. I don't know. So. There's some of those mixed in there. There's some interesting comments, but uh, fortunately, neither of us get too many of these uh, one star guys. And by the way, when we do get a, a nice review about a story, it means the world to us, just so you know that. Every author likes to say, oh, no, I don't look at my reviews. Every author looks at their reviews. <laughs> at some point, you try not to, and I don't look at them very often. I used to, and I, and I don't now. But every once in a while, you dive in there. And when you read one that's uh, somebody really enjoyed the story, it means a ton to us. It does. It, it's great. Yeah, that, I was just mentioning that in my newsletter. It's so, so nice when these readers reach out and tell us how much these stories mean to us. And it is harder sometimes to read all of them when you get like you and I do with more than 10 books. It's hard to read all of our reviews, but it's fun to, to go through them and see for you. So let's hear what, which, uh, what's your one star, all star. <laughs> let me, uh, let me pick one here. This is a one star one. Sorely disappointed. This is David wrote this. Thank you, David. After reading 12% of the book, I came to the conclusion that Mr. Harvey had digressed in his vocabulary. Digressed. I lose interest, spelled oh. wrong, by the way, oh. loose instead of lose. Oh. I lose interest. So, uh, by the way, if you're going to write a review and pan something, especially, especially a vocabulary. Book, <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't spell it wrong, all right? I lose interest when the content drops to the multiple uses of four-letter words. They serve no purpose to the plot and cheapen the reading experience. This is the great bit. It is like putting poop in brownies. It does the poop no good and ruins the brownies. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's, wow. right. he thinks he's quite the poet here, doesn't he? Although he spells stuff wrong. Um, so this yeah. is uh, this is on about Burning Summer, my last release in the uh, Nora Summer series. What he's referring to is a man was burned alive <laughs> in the early part of the book, and he swore a bit while this was going on. So, David, if you'd like to raise your hand and step forth, allow me to set fire to you while you're chained inside a car, and see if you can maintain good language, PG thirteen language throughout the process. That's right. It's interesting too that you're murdering somebody in the book and that doesn't bother him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're setting fire to a guy in a car. He's all right with that. He's yeah, no that. yeah it's fine. But he cussed. All right, what you got? Oh, allow me. This one is, uh, I'll pull this. This has been my favorite one, although I did find a new one while we were doing this. But uh, this one here I liked a lot. It, uh, it was from PJS, who is in Australia. So it's a one star review. It's for uh, Deep Gold, which is my third. Chase Gordon uh, book, which basically has Chase hunting down a sunken Nazi submarine and fighting off some neo-Nazis. So it was a lot of fun to write. But PJS thinks it's rubbish with a capital R. And he says the first two books in this series had some value. That was very nice. Well, I appreciate that part. But this one was just fluff and escapism from real reality. Which is kind of the whole point. It's fiction, isn't it? I thought that was the whole thing. We were writing fiction. Uh, maybe you yeah, need to look for the... Uh, I'm disappointed you didn't do that in an Australian accent. Ah, well, I, w I would have been brutal. I, give it a go. Go on, I, give it a go. Thanks. Go on. 
Come on, give it a go. Look, I'm going to use one of those four-letter words on you, so. <laughs> <laughs> Can I do it in an Australian accent? Well, yes, but what's the difference in an Australian accent and a British accent? They're the oh, same thing. Oh, what? I want to I yeah, see. Same. People, send Doug letters about this, inundate him with letters. Aussie would be like, rubbish, with a capital R, mate. The first two books in this series had some value, but this one was just fluff or escapism from reality. I don't know. That sounded British to me, so. <laughs> what? That's not British. You... Did you not watch Crocodile Dundee? That's more, <laughs> <it's> more Australian. <laughs> All right. Okay, I'm going to do one more uh, up here then. Um, this one actually isn't a one star. Alana gave me a three star, which was very kind of her. This is the part that kills me. She starts off slow and British. You should have that on a shirt. I, I should, slow and British. <laughs> That's pretty much me. I'm a bit dense and I'm from the UK. So, yes, should, I'm slow and British. You should, you should get a T-shirt that says slow and British and that's all it says, yeah. <laughs> but she's, I mean, she's saying it like British is like, you know, oh, my God, <laughs> it's British. Can you, British. can you smell it? It's awful. <laughs> <laughs> she should get together with poop and the brownie guy. Maybe that's she, right, yeah. Maybe it's a brownie with poop in it. Maybe. That's what she was thinking. So she says, some terms did not match American English. I'm not sure what she means by that, match American English. No, I write in UK English, I, especially as my series, uh, AJ Bailey, my protagonist, is uh, English, and she's on a British island in the Caribbean called the Cayman Islands, and I am English, so I write in UK English. Big surprise. Um, but apparently that uh, offended her. But anyway, she wanted to say all the diving descriptions were redundant as they were explained to the reader, then re-explained as they were carried out. And then she says, it was a fun little adventure read. So I guess that's why it got the three stars off. She panned it and insulted she the whole. Covered, she like, she like, oh, it was, it was slow and British, but it wasn't bad. So. Yeah, she insults the whole, the, the whole British uh, nation and then uh, goes on to say, yeah, but it's an adventure read. It's all right. It's like, it's like, it's like everything on BBC, isn't it? Slow and British. Be- <laughs> <laughs> all right, give us uh, another one. What you got? All right, I got one more. This one was a. Uh, Fairly recent one. Well, no, I take that back. It's not the one. This one also is for Deep Gold. I, I, I kind of wish was that one. This was from Emac. One star review, and he says, "Yuck, <laughs> <laughs> redundant, not believable, gratuitous sex, blah blah, kill, kill." He misspelled kill. Yuck, yuck. Done with the series. Waste of time. Yuck. So I think he liked it. <laughs> <laughs> blah blah the, kill kill because he threw some extra L's sex. in there gratuitous yeah. sex yeah okay yeah it's, a, it's all right well i hate to i hate to lose emac there but uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> what what amazes me is it, it hasn't happened to uh i don't think i've had one like this but if uh, someone else was telling me i can't remember who it was now another author was telling me someone wrote this review <laughs> and, and, and like every they've reviewed every book <laughs> And every one they pan. Like, I mean, they've never given it better than a three star, but they keep reading the series. It's like, if you don't like them, stop reading. Believe it or not, there's plenty of other books out there. (laughs) All right. We got a a question. Let's move on. We got a question from someone. What you got? Lots of questions. Okay. Our question today is Would you take $10 million in cash or start your life over at the age of 10 knowing everything you know now? That is a brilliant question. Who on this planet over the age of 
20 has not, I don't know about the 10 million part, but has not given thought to going back in time. If you could go back and be a kid and know what you know now, right? I mean, everybody's thought about that at some point. I know I have. I, uh, and the older we get, I find I get more nostalgic. And you, oh, yeah, you're, you're really good at polishing off the uh, forgetting all the crap and the shitty stuff you dealt with when you were growing up and all the hell you went through in puberty and everything else. I was like, everything and, between 10 and 18 was. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah it's like hell on wheels. So, so, I, I, so I thought about this because I saw you, you'd got this question in there this morning. It would be obviously fantastic to go back and know what you know now and have all that information. You would doogie Hauser the shit out of school. I mean, <laughs> you would be the smartest kid in school. Even as dumb as I was in school, taking back what you've learned now and uh, the I, hardest part would be not know. arguing I, with the teacher. I, I was going to say, I think I, would, I would, wouldn't. I think that the problem would be I realized a lot of it was just pure shit and I'm like, whatever, I'm not. Why, why am I going to put up with this? I have yet to use algebra in 50 years. Why am I going to start now, you know? Exactly, yeah. I'm never <laughs> going to need this. I know for a fact I never yeah. need this. What, what's trig- trigonometry? I'm, I write books. I don't, you know, that doesn't mean somebody doesn't use it, but I knew what I'd be doing, so. Yeah, yeah. But the um, for me, you know, I grew up in racing, and I started racing when I was 11. I was already, my dad had shoved me in a go-kart, and, uh, we were running around this little agricultural yard in the middle of nowhere when I was about 10. So if I knew what I knew now, it would drastically change the way I went about my racing career. That's for sure. If I choose to pursue that. But the problem is you'll know everything that happened down the one timeline that you have in life. And now everything you do is going to, is, yeah, absolutely. It's going to change that. Right. So my answer to it is I take, I take the cash because the overriding factor would be the fact is Cheryl is my wife. She's a couple of years older than me. So, and she got married quite young because she was in Oklahoma and that's what you do in Oklahoma. And the, (laughs) (laughs) and so when I was 10. And everybody from Oklahoma now can write letters to Nick. We don't get to get married. So, well, she did. So when I was 10, she was 17 and, and about to get married. So if a 10-year-old's like, um, mom and dad, can I borrow a couple of pounds? Because I need to fly to Oklahoma in America and tell this girl who's 17 that she shouldn't marry this bloke. So none of it would, you know, you'd have to let things play out. For me to end up with Cheryl, I'd have to let things play out the way they played out. Otherwise, Everything you did along the way where you, and you couldn't, right? You couldn't stop yourself from doing something differently. You probably rush something, you know, you know, you might, you might hit Cheryl at the wrong time and she'd be like, yeah, no, I don't want that. Oh, you know? when I'm a 10 year old coming in, bursting up her wedding. Yeah. She'd be like, get that little shit out of here. <laughs> so, but they, there was in secondary school, which is what you call high school. I would go back and grow a set and ask a girl out then. But then there's that butterfly effect again, you know? Who knows? Yeah, you know. I mean, that's it's it's all debatable. I don't know. That's tough. Uh, there's a lot that I, you know. I I would have started writing much. Well, I was already writing, but I'd have, I'd have put more effort into it at that point. Skipped a bunch of the crappy jobs I had through life and moved on. But yeah, I was lucky enough that I met Ashley in high school, so we've known each other since we were ten. So. So that probably would have worked out. out the same. Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah, I would have. Well, I would. I would have annoyed her more beforehand, and been the same. So, 
she's a she's a saint. Just so everybody knows, Ashley is a saint. She's a lovely yes. lady. Uh, anybody that puts up with me is insane. Cool. Well, let's move on to the interview because we have a fantastic right. interview yes. this week. We have Mr. L. T. Ryan joining us in a few moments. Prolific writer. Amazon shows he has 106 titles out there. He's been writing uh, or published since the early, uh, uh, I think 2012 um, is the earliest one that I saw on there. Very cool guy, and we can't wait to chat with him, and he's coming up on the show next. Let's welcome uh, LT Ryan. Lee, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderful. How about yourself? Uh, doing great, doing great. So you are, uh, we're, we've been just talk about you you have got like what a thousand books on amazon <laughs> yeah, is it? Thousand, i don't know thousand and one, somewhere around there yeah. 106 it said 106. i looked it up this morning it's 106 no it is not that many yeah i swear to god amazon says you have 106 publications they gotta be counting some things twice there probably well you know i did like when i started out i did do the um some of the original jack noble books were released in 100 page installments so yeah. I think they they still count those, but uh, they're not they're not live anymore. Oh, we're not Price. that prolific then. It's really not that many. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's only like seventy or eighty, seventy not- something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god! So when did you first uh, publish? I started just over eleven years ago. It was um, right before I think Memorial Day weekend is when the first Jack Noble book went up. Maybe a few weeks before that, I put up uh, like a hundred page story that uh, was taken down pretty quickly. <laughs> and never ever see the light of day again. <laughs> That's fair. Completely fair. <laughs> yeah. So you got in right in the can of uh, the happy times, as the uh, uh, U-boat captains used to call it, of, of Kindle. You know, like the tail end of it. I got in right after, before I got in, there was a thing that if you, uh, whenever you had a free book, whatever downloads it got would count as a sale when it went back to paid. So there were people hitting like the top 10 of Amazon and, and all that. I got in right after that. So yeah, I was, I, was, I published in 2011. So and okay. yeah, I you remember that. I remember that, but I didn't, I never gave away enough to even count for a sale, but yeah, it was crazy that I was like, uh, yeah, things were definitely different. So I waited until 2020. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 really, I wanted, I wanted more competition. I wanted yeah, it to be harder. Absolutely. <laughs> Jumped in at the hard time. So you you do write in like several I mean, kind of mainly like the thriller genre, but I think your biggest series was Jack Noble, Rachel Hatch, and yeah, the, those are the two biggest ones. Noble's the longest running, of course, since uh, 2012, and then Hatch we started. That was my first jump into co-writing, and we started that in uh, 2019, and it, it took off pretty quickly. Yeah. We'll talk some more about Rachel Hatch because I'm fascinated because I, I uh, obviously I write female protagonists and and, and you do in that and, I, and I've uh, I read a couple of yours the uh, Jack Noble and then the first Rachel Hatch I, I just finished uh, about a week ago and uh, yeah, it's, yeah I love uh, it it's fantastic I'm on, yeah I I'm was on the all I'm on the fourth it. one so yeah well yeah. you read a lot faster than I me read, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry the, I will say the the Rachel Hatch reads man she reads well those are some- oh yeah. Those, I was like plowing through those, and I don't usually do that. So uh, yeah. that classic, so. unputdownable. Yeah, so great yes, stuff. Very much so. But writing so. wasn't your background, right? No, no, not at all. Um, I mean, as a kid, yeah, I wrote a lot as a kid, and I was ten or eleven years old, and we were at uh, my grandparents' farm, and my uncle saw me reading, and he was sitting across from me reading, and he said, "Hey, you like reading?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course." And he tossed me his book. And it was his worn copy of The Shining. Oh, and yeah. And 
So, you know, going into fifth grade or going into sixth grade, I, I read that and became obsessed with Stephen King. And I knew at that age that this was something I wanted to do, like, because just to make people feel something the way that his books made me feel and still do. You know, I, that, that was something I, I really knew I wanted. And so I went from writing whatever kind of stories kids write to writing whatever version of horror an 11 year old writes and uh, <laughs> kind of stuck with that throughout, <laughs> you know, it advanced through high school. And then I, I did it through college as well. But, um, yeah, I got married young and jumped into a, a ready made family with a three year old stepdaughter. And, uh, you know, this was the late nineties. I needed to make money. Writing didn't seem like the way to do that. And uh, so I, I kind of went two tracks at that point, worked toward getting into IT. I was a, a telephony switch technician, learned everything about Unix I could, uh, went the IT route with the company I was with. And at the same time, I also started running a business. You know, mostly everything was online at that point. And I started with eBay and, and developed into websites and informational websites and, and learned a lot about marketing along that way, both paid and organic SEO. And as I you know, rose to the level of being a software engineer, these companies kept growing to the point where it was rivaling what I made with my company or as a job, you know, my, my job. And uh, we reached this point where my wife was going to take over her office and it was a pretty good pay increase. So we decided to like make that jump. Like, I'm going to leave my business. I can stop paying people to do a lot of the things that I was doing, you know, run it myself or, or incorporate them in whatever way. And um Shortly after that, there was a, a massive Google update and I lost 90% of my traffic and income overnight. And, uh, oh my God. Prior to this, yeah. Wow. So this was 2012. I had just left my company and they were a great company. I could have gone back within a year. They'd abridged all my time, same benefits. And, you know, I had on my white, I keep looking over because my whiteboard's over there. And I had had on my whiteboard at the time, KDP. You know, I'd heard about it at this point. It was 2012. And I had a friend who I'd known since the mid 2000s. She had wrote content for me and she was making like 7,500 bucks a day with a couple of romance stories. And she knew this background, knew that I had written, knew that I did poetry when I was younger and all that. And she said, Hey, you should do this. Like, you know, what's waiting. And, you know, through the years with Google, I had gone through similar situations, not as drastic, but you lose some traffic, you figure out what they want, and you gain it back. And this time it was just, I don't want to say insurmountable, but I just didn't want to do it again. So I was like, all right, what the hell? I got all this time in the world. I'm going to start writing. And um, like I said, the first story wasn't wasn't nothing to write home about. The second one, you know, it, it kind of took off a little bit. And it was the first Jack Noble story. It was supposed to be just a short story or a hundred page, like a novella. And I really liked the characters I came up with. So... I said, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to figure out how to turn this into another book and another book. And somewhere in the middle, I wrote uh, the first uh, Mitch Tanner story, which it was a novel, but it was different than what Mitch Tanner is. But it was the first time that I, I think I'd ever completed something that was 300 pages. And I just did it. I did it like in two weeks too. I was like, okay, I can do that. I'm not going to publish this thing, but I can do this. And I went back to Noble. And by this point, it had, I'd started getting emails from people. And I was like, what the hell is this? An email from a reader that enjoyed this? And, <laughs> you know, because I, I, I went into this whole thing more as a, a marketer, I think, than, than a writer, right? I was looking to grow a business, but right. I, quickly, yeah. I quickly realized how many levels that this could affect me 
on by how it was affecting people. You know, when you start getting emails from people that are, are dealing with cancer or a loved one's passing or PTSD, and they tell you your books help them, you, you start to realize like, this is a little bit different than running a website. This is different than selling something on eBay or, or selling a product. Like this is something that has the power to really touch and affect people's lives, even, even though it's, it's genre fiction. I'm at the point now where like, I mean, I have five employees and, and we run a publishing company and I mean, this, is a, this is a business, but I tell everybody that, that works with me, that writes for us, writes with me is that first and foremost, we are an entertainment company. Our job is to entertain people, but don't forget, this is pretty powerful. You know, when I tell them the same things and show them the emails people have sent in and, and, you know, kind of get that, just, just how impactful what we do can be. And so all of the other things I had done before, I had a passion for making money. I didn't necessarily <laughs> have a passion for the industries I was in, right? Yeah. right? But I've been doing this for, for over a decade. And when I get on the phone with a new writer or somebody wants to work with me, by the end, they're, they're buzzing and vibrating because of the energy that I have as I sit here and talk about this. And so it, the passion that has, has come through and still exists for me within this business is something I think is, is special. You definitely come across as a very driven guy. We, we had a chat before a couple of weeks ago before the show. And what drove you back then? As you said, you, you had a passion or, or a drive for making money, which I think is, yeah, it's certainly not uncommon. But do you feel like your drive now is the same as it was? Has it moved? Has it changed, evolved? It's, it's different now. Um, you know, back then it was, well, I mean, I had just achieved a dream of leaving a job for my own business. And then in one night I saw it disappear. Right. So it was like, okay, continue to fight Google, figure out something new or look at this. This is interesting. This is something you enjoy or really did enjoy before. And as I started writing again, it was just, it was so much fun. Right. Just like there were no rules. I was like, I want to write an episode of 24 mixed with a Jason Bourne movie. And I did. I didn't care. I just wrote whatever the hell I wanted to write. And I had just had a blast doing it. You know, that kind of wears off a bit, especially as it becomes popular. There's a lot more pressure involved. So, you know, early on, it was, it was definitely maintaining that ability to work for myself. My youngest daughter had been born. So I have two older daughters. One is 29, one is 25. And I have a 12-year-old having them young and working so hard, you know, I mean, working a couple of those years, I went to school. Uh, my wife went to school full time. We ran a business full time. There were a lot of times I sacrificed friend and family time over those years. Having a baby later in life, I was 35 when she was born and wanting to be there so much more and being able to work from home was a big step toward that. So I, you know, I knew I wanted this to happen this way. And so that's what, I mean, really drove me to, to learn the craft, to not learn marketing, but adapt marketing for this industry and really push to get to a point where my wife didn't have to work, where I could run this business and write books and we could have a good life. And so it took seven months to, or eight months to crack $10,000 for a month. And then by the end of 2013, I was sitting at a grand a day. And then it, it grew and it kind of stayed at a certain level through 2017. And um, I had resisted Kindle Unlimited until that point, just 
there were a lot of changes through the market. There always is. But one of the things I could see was that, you know, having a free first book did not convert as well as it used to. The rankings on book two were slipping, which meant I was losing money on Amazon. I was losing money on the other platforms. I had released a prequel and literally like nothing happened. And so after two weeks, I put it into KU. The next day, it was featured in Amazon's Misty Thriller newsletter. You know, like I had a rep and he was telling me, put it in KU and we'll do everything for you. So then I went all in on KU and I figured out AMS. And, um, you know, by that summer, things really exploded to like a quarter million dollars a month kind of level. And um, that KU bonus, I hit that top 10 KU bonus for 14 months straight, I think it was. 12 to 14, I forget where it went to 10, but just off the Noble series too. Then once you have co-writers, it, it that system didn't work the same because it has to be under one name. So it changed that we still had those kind of uh, page reads, but it changed a bit. So talk a little bit about the, the marketing versus the writing. I mean, your success and you've had uh, great success. Obviously, the books are really good. That's mm. a given, right? Debatable. Uh, uh, oh, wow. they're, they're really good. I'd they're say they're really very good. good. Yeah, they're yeah, really they're very good. good. So. But do you credit more of your success to your marketing acumen or the writing? The marketing. I, I really think that especially, well, let me rephrase that. The book has to be good enough yeah. for people to want to read the next one, right? Yep. And, and I'll talk more about like lessons that I learned from from that series to hatch. But you know, if you don't have people that, that are excited about it and you're not making them feel something, you could spend a million dollars and it's not going to do anything, right? And so going in, I knew and could tell from my writing and from having other people give feedback on it that, you know, the pacing was what I was really strong at and the dialogue was something I was really strong at. So I focused on those two things to make somebody feel. And what I wanted people to feel was it's the same thing I read whenever I read the first Jack Reacher book. And I've read it multiple times. Every time I read that book, I do not set it down. I walk around the house with it. I take it everywhere until I have finished that book. It just, it grips me so much. So the best compliment I ever get is I didn't go to bed till four. I was late for work. Yeah. My husband's <laughs> mad at me because I didn't make him dinner, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever, whatever kind of thing that, that people tell me that they can't put the book down. That is, so I, I wanted people to feel that anxiousness that I can't stop. So they're, you know, the pacing on, especially some of the noble books is, is really extreme. There's not much let up in a lot of those. So I, you have to have something that is, that is, that is going to connect with that ideal audience and make them want to continue through. Then you've got to get it in front of them and you've got to get them to purchase it and you've got to get them to go to the next one. So I think having the understanding of the marketing and putting all the pieces together. So like the first strategy that I really jumped into was, all right, we're going to have that first book free. We're going to use Facebook advertising to get them to that first book. And then we're going to get them on a mailing list. And then, you know, when I got into BookBub and, and BookBub was was very different end of 2012 when the people that knew about it were guarding it. They weren't telling everybody. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then somebody, like it's keyboard days, somebody finally came along and said, hey, there's this thing called BookBub. You know, when I first applied to them, it was December of 2012. I didn't have 25 reviews. And they said, you don't have 25 reviews. And I was like, well, hey, can you help me? Give me some advice. And the guy's emailed included somebody else. And he said, introduce him to so-and-so who runs this promo site and ask them to help him out. 
And they did. They gave me the promo. I got the reviews. I applied. They took it. My first one went so well. It was either that February or March. I had another one scheduled already. And they said, hey, we got a cancellation. Do you have another book you can give us? I was like, <laughs> That's like wow. you're speaking some foreign tongue here. Bookbub reaching out and saying, "Hey, they do you mind if we run your book?" Me. And uh, so they were they were instrumental as well in the beginning. I mean, they did so much to help push, and the and their list was different then too, right? Their list wanted books to read, and I think that list has has shifted a bit over the years into more. Um, uh, hoarding mentality, you know, and, and I can say that because I'm like that. I will <laughs> buy 99 cent books like crazy and never touch them. Yeah. So, um, you know, but, but all those pieces together and growing that list and cultivating that list. And I think I jumped in on the, the one-to-one email trend really early. All of my workflows made it feel like I was talking directly to you. Um, I got a lot of replies back from people. So the combination of all those elements, I think, is what really worked. And just, you know, everything from how I structured my books, the back matter, the audible links, the getting them onto the list, getting them to the next book, all of those things worked. And people were discussing these things, but the, the Facebook side was, was definitely a big driver, you know, until it wasn't anymore. And I switched to the AMS and, and the AMS too, like I did things other people wouldn't do or didn't do. I didn't listen to what the your onboarding and the reps told me I should do. I tried other things. Uh, I find the advertising piece, I'm very logical, but I'm also very creative, right? And I find that the advertising piece, I, I blend those things together. I look at things a little bit differently. I look at numbers differently. I look for trends differently, I think, than, than a lot of people approach it. It's just the way that I do it. And as I talk to people, I, I can see that. So the, the marketing played, played a big, big part. And being able to you know, there, there were a few things that really helped in 2018. One, Noble Beginnings had been free for, you know, four and a half, five years, something like that. And I had always managed to keep it around the top 100 free. And because of that, it developed a lot of connections in the store. So this time in 2018, relevance was was massive. Like we're in a place now where the relevance matters a bit. The search intent matters a bit, but they're really focusing on the user profile. And that person that's searching, like suggested keywords for me are sometimes liquid IV uh, and liquid death, the canned water, because my company is liquid my media. So there's, <laughs> yeah. there's something broken about relevance. But in 2018, relevance was big back then. Relevance yeah, was, was big. Really and big. So yeah. there was a tool, there's a tool called Sonar. And you could see how many connections your book has to other books. And the most I had found at the time was um, the late Scott Pratt, his innocent client had, I don't know, 125,000 and Noble Beginnings had over a quarter million. So I was fortunate enough to get an Advantage account, which gave me a different AMS. So I had access to like sponsored display, which was called product display back then. And it was a really nice ad in the buy box as well as an email placement. Basically, I had romance writers saying, hey, why is your ad on my book page? I said, <laughs> better question for you is why is it converting one in four? Right, yeah. Now, you're not going to get that now because in five years, romance has changed a ton. 
But at that time, I could, you know, pretty much advertise anywhere. And this book was getting so much traction. And being that mainstream traditional thriller, you know, in the vein of a Jack Reacher book, in the vein of Tom Clancy, you know, perfect for everything that Baldacci had done in those fans. It just, it really took off. So I don't think without that marketing piece, I would have had the same level of success, you know, regardless of the, the quality of the book. So I want, I want to ask you a quick question too. kind of you, go back to kind of what you said about like the reader engagement, the fact that you, you have the way you reach out with newsletters or whatever, but the way that you can get to where people are responding to you and saying, Hey, this book really meant a lot to me. This, you know, uh, how do you cultivate that? And what, what is important in that terms? You know, back then it was, it was crazy. I had so many people that I had ongoing emails with, like it's, daily with some people. And there's a big difference though. Now, you know, over the last five years, whether the changes with, you know, Gmail and Yahoo and all those and the rise of social media and more people being on social media, uh, the engagement on email isn't the same as it used to be. It's, there's nowhere near the level of replies. Like when I first had an assistant, I'd be like, okay, there's an email going out, be ready. We both need to be in here because there's going to be five, 600 replies. And uh, now there's a handful. It's changed a lot. So, you know, these are areas now I'm playing catch up on because I did not cultivate that Facebook group early on the way I should have. You know, so I'm coming from behind now to try to get more people into it. And, you know, I see friends that have these groups that are, you know, maybe 10,000, 15,000 people, but they're so rabid. You know, they've got them trained to a point where they just they're putting a lot of content up They're They're heavily invested in the author themselves. And not to say that mine, I mean, mine has, you know, a good amount of content coming in from the users. But like, I still don't post enough in there. Uh, at the end of the day, it's like the social part is the part that I leave out the most. The other areas we can be, you know, get that kind of you in front of them like TikTok. But for my slice of mystery thriller, there's not a big TikTok presence. You, no. you don't you don't find people talking. They're not talking about James Patterson. They're not talking about David Badachi. Even Harlan Coben, who who really you know his standalone stuff does kind of break into that domestic suspense psych thriller area. He doesn't even get that much playtime on there. You know, on TikTok, mystery thriller is psych thriller, domestic suspense you know, anywhere from, from Frida on down, but it hasn't reached that place. And I do think that Hatch could do extremely well on there. I do think that my new Castle series could do extremely well on there, especially that one. It's a little grittier. So part of what I'm thinking about for the future now really, really involves that because the interaction with, with the readers now is that's where it's at. It's, it's on Facebook, it's in your groups, it's on Instagram to a point, but TikTok especially now for depending on your genre, but uh, you know, and trying to get my audience there is a challenge just because of, I think how they, how they skew in general, being older for one. I mean, it's mostly 55 plus and, and that's just not the place that they're, they're hanging out right now. Yeah. That's been my conclusion. I spend a, a little bit of time and, and, and effort on TikTok and quickly uh, and moved away. It's changing, you know, for anybody that's in Thriller out there, it's changing Thriller because one of the big things with the algorithm right now is 
traffic coming in, searching for you, searching for your books. And so when you look at the top 100 now, it's a lot of TikTok books. And I'm not talking about necessarily viral. It's just stuff that's being talked about a lot there through the various accounts or authors that are really good on it. But they have people coming, searching for them, buying that book. And that carries so much weight now. And so you see this shift within Mystery Thriller overall. And I see it in the comps and what's being recommended for me to sell or, or what's getting purchases off it. It is a lot of that psych thriller that, that's coming through now. So... I don't think that traditional thriller is dead or going anywhere. And I think people will continue because I, I think the trend always has been kind of wherever you're coming in from, you're going to gravitate towards a certain slice. But I, I do think that people are com- who are coming in early now, you can pretty much attribute it to Colleen Hoover and Verity. You know, it's taking a lot of people from romance who might come into thriller a little bit later. They still traditionally would come in through that domestic or psych route anyway. And I think as you get older, you just kind of gravitate more towards these these longer series, you know, with the character you follow along. Seems to be how the market works. I don't know. Yeah. So romantic thriller, that's the way to go, huh? So <laughs> well, romantic suspense is, is, is a big one, but... Um, you know, I am I am working now on some standalone stuff that uh, kind of bridges what I do now with a more psych thriller. Very dark. I look at it as more dark thriller, but working on more of those psychological elements into some of these ideas. And, and I got a couple of authors I'm working on and a few. They're not necessarily series as much as taking a cue from romance writers like all right, same place, cast of characters, supporting characters who come in, people that stick around, things that tie them together. And I think that's what's going to resonate with this audience a bit. You know, it's not necessarily, it's 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 not free to style, probably more Lisa Jackson, Lisa Jewell, Karen Slaughter, those kind of stories, which is, I, I enjoy those. I've always enjoyed those. When I, you know, when I started, I very much loved what I write, but I looked at what has been around for 20 years or so and still sells well. And in 2012, you know, Jack Ryan, Jack Reacher, Harry Bosch, you know, all these things that have been around since the 80s and 90s were still doing well. And so I said, okay, this is something evergreen is just the best term for it. So, and I see more psych thriller becoming evergreen these days. So So what led you to the decision to write a female protagonist? Let's talk about Rachel Hatch a little bit here. Well, through the the noble books, I had Clarissa, who was a... a major character in a lot of them. And I did a standalone in her point of view as well. And the plan had been to do a series for Clarissa. I had to kick her out of the main series in order to do so. And I kept thinking, okay, it's going to happen in this book. No, it's going to happen <laughs> in the next one. And it got to the point where I was like, okay, this is going to take a couple of years. Because at this point with Noble, I'm just doing one a year. And so I knew it was going to take a while. I met Brian in 2018 and he had emailed me and asked me for help. You know, a note to any authors out there listening. If you're going to ask a writer for help, be humble about it. Don't say you're the next best thing. Just say, <laughs> hey, this is my background. This is what I'm trying to accomplish. You know, here's what I have. Here's some links. What do you think? And then if you get advice, say thank you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> if at all possible, act on it. You know, I recently did receive an email that said, How do I do what you've done? I have the content. It must be advertising. You can find my books on Amazon under this name. (laughs) And I was like, 
All right. Hey, you want me to write them and market them for you too? I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, take, uh, take, take 30 seconds and grab your links for me. Right. So anyway, Lee, so- Lee just so you know, I told Doug <laughs> not to send that email. I told him. <laughs> but, you know, my well, ignoring it. <laughs> hey, I do what I can. So yeah. thank you though for the help. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I had another one and I will, I will bring it up because this was very recent, but uh, another one that I'm, I'm questioning, like, just tell me you're an author. Like I, I can figure that out. Just, just tell me, quit asking who write, who, co- who designs my covers, you know, because you love the books. Like just say you're an author and you want a recommendation. So Brian had emailed me and, and, uh, you know, it's just that kind of thing. Hey, I, I'm trying to make this happen. I'm a cop. I work violent crimes against children. I can't do this much longer. And, um, I looked him up and I saw his background and everything he had done. And he'd been in the military. He'd gone through SEAL training. He worked for, he worked with inner city school kids. Uh, he'd been a, a, a narcotics detective who then got put on violent crimes against children. And, uh, and I, you know, I read through one of his books and it was good. And I gave him some advice and he emailed me two days later and he had done everything I said. And, um, I kept talking to him and I introduced him to somebody with a similar background who had started more recently. And I was like, you know, Hey, here's somebody you could talk to who's, you know, doesn't have the benefit of, was it six and a half years at the time of, of success? And we had a small event in Asheville and I brought him along and, and the other guy as well. And uh, he was a former Green Beret and um, Jason Casper. And they're like, what are we doing here? Because at the time, like in that room, we had at least 10% of KU payout, KDP payout. And I said to them, I was like, all right, you guys have been in situations where you may have had to kill people. Nobody in here has done anything like that. You you bring a level of expertise that everybody in here can use, and there are romance writers and urban fantasy writers from that day that that still contact them for like how would a cop handle this, how would a soldier do this, right? And uh, so as we're talking over those few days and hanging out at night, uh, he said something literally on the last night or the last two up. You know, we had summertime stuff planned, and and I told him I was like, hey, you know, later this summer, just just hit me up and let's talk about doing a project together. And so he like got a hold of me in August and I was like, well, what do you got? What ideas do you have? And, and he had this idea for a character named Rachel Hatch. He had pitched it to Thomas and Mercer and they didn't take it. And, and uh, I liked the background of the character. The story itself was like some dystopian Hallmark Channel kind of movie. Um, <laughs> I was like, look, the, the character background is cool. I was like, this could be a book, but... She's not very likable and there's no way this is a series. And I was like, I have this idea, this plan for my character, Clarissa. What if we take your character and her background, which, you know, is army and had worked with special forces and had been an investigator. And we blend that with my idea here. And uh, he was into it. And so I was like, let's come up with a little idea. And we spent some time and came up with an idea I was like, you know, just, just write a couple chapters of this. Let me see how this comes out of you. He did that. And it's like, okay, I think we can work together. And so he came out here and we spent three days in my office and um, there may have been some vodka involved, but we (laughs) came up with like a a nine book plan outlined like the first three books. And you said you're on book four. And interestingly, book four would have actually come later. Because the first three books like ramp up, as you saw, you know, like fever burn, fever burn gets really intense. The plan, the plan had been to continue going like that. And I was like, you know, I, I think we really need to drop this. We need to go back, send her back to Hawk's Landing, 
bring Savage back in and let's do a personal story again. Let's make this personal because, you know, that's the way it goes. This personal story builds up into something new for Hatch. So, you know, we got the first one done and we put it out and, you know, I think I put the pre-order up two weeks early and had one or two people email as well. And it just, you know, it took off and it hit. And it, it really resonated. And so to that point about, you know, what made me want to write a female character, as we were talking about this, a friend of mine, and I won't name her, but she's she's very popular and uh, writes in urban fantasy, paranormal romance, has created subgenres. And she was, she laughed. She was like, there's no freaking way the two of you are going to be able to write a believable female character. And I was like, all right name challenge um, accepted <laughs> exactly. challenge accepted and you know i i think brian for everything he's done everything he's been through he decided not to be a seal a week before he was going to go to a team like he made it through all the training i think he was one of the most intelligent emotionally intelligent people i've ever met and, and i think i i share some of those qualities as well so i think being able to get into that head having written the the female character before you know i, I think we did a pretty good job with her. Yeah, a great job, actually. Making her realistic, and she's not a she's not a romance lead, you know, but she definitely is a character that I think is fleshed out. It's not a guy that would just turn into a woman, you know. There's these elements and things that she struggles with, and and wants to do better, wants to be better with, and, and wants to connect better with. But uh, that's part of her journey, and and how she how she learns, how you know, it's either it's either physical or emotional discomfort to the point where she has to change and not to give any spoilers, but there's a massive one that made a lot of people mad at one character or another at the end of book nine, but it, it's all part of that growth and, and what resets her and, and will change her in later books. So with that being said, what are, what are like the biggest challenges you have from that female perspective? Uh, I, you know, sometimes some people have called out, no, there's no way she could do this to that many men or something like that, you know, fighting wise and think physically and things like that. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I mean, she's, she's highly trained and, and she uses her strengths and her leverage, you know, within her, um, uh, the neither Brian or I are, um, romance writers whatsoever. <laughs> so any, anything that has to do like with her romantic relationships can be a bit awkward. You know, I, I do think that is part of it. And now that, uh, by actually now starting with uh, a little bit with book nine, she's not credited, but on book 10, my daughter has been involved as well. Cool. And I find that she's exceptionally strong in our more reflective hatch chapters. I think she brings in elements that, that we didn't like in book nine, there is a scene where she has to get dressed in an evening gown. And for Hatch, that is like, fuck that. Yeah. You can bleep that if you need to. But <laughs> she's able to kind of capture that that dichotomy in her brain, like this battle in her This does make me feel a little different. I do like how this looks, but it goes against who I am and what I'm about. But, you know, and, and how she feels and awkward, but also confident while she's doing it. So I think as as we progress through the next set and and there's a love interest involved. I think it, it may come through a little bit differently this time, having Fiona more involved with, with the process. Because that, that is definitely something I think Brian and I kind of struggle with. It's like, you know, you, I don't know if you've gotten to the point in book four where her and, and Savage almost kiss. 
but it, it's it's comedic. No, and, no, not yet. And, not. It's comedic and <laughs> how it unfolds. But I do think also that having it that way, the way that the, her you know her with romance goes, it is it is true to her character. I think I would say so. Yes, she feels like a different kind, of, like diff, that different kind of a romance isn't high on her agenda at all. Right. And she's, she's so much in her head. Like when I'm, when I'm trying to tell people for like a signing or something like eh, Noble runs his head through a wall, Hatch never leaves her head. She just gets so stuck. And, and even the difference in the writing style, the way that Noble is written is very staccato, direct forward. But um, with her, you know, you, you get some really convoluted sentences and paragraphs and uh, cyclical thinking where she never gets out of her head. And, it, you know, it's all about that, that part of that character. Well, and so, Tyler, you do a lot of several different co-writers. How do you go about choosing who you work with? It's very intuitive to a point. Uh, So, you know, Brian, like I knew him for almost a year, and I knew that we we got along well and could do this well together. And he's involved with uh, a lot on the back end now. We work closely together on a number of projects, and... You know, as I as I made this shift into doing this, the the first time was I just you know I wanted to do something new and try something new. The rest came about as the pandemic hit. I quite literally was just bored. I couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're on the road all the time, right? Or going to different places. So it's like I, I couldn't travel, and I'm like, I got to do something. And so Karen, I had known she was my first editor. I got her like right out of college, and. We had worked together for so long and um, she writes and I was like, Hey, what do you think about this? And Cassie comes from the Mitch Tanner world and Mitch Tanner is a very dark thriller and Cassie in those stories, especially the second one is extremely dark, but I wanted something different when I did a series for this character. I knew I wanted to do something and I knew if I wrote it, it would be really, really dark. And I wanted something that kind of fell within like medium and ghost whisperer, right? Going back to that TV structure. And I knew with Karen, knowing Karen the way I did, just kind of her personality and she's a little timid that she could she could do this character the way I wanted, you know, with me very well. And I incorporated a lot of her. I was like, you know, Cassie, she's a medium. But other than that, she's kind of a blank picture, you know, just a blank canvas. And I was like, what did you graduate with? And Karen had a degree in art history. And I was like, great, because the story starts off in Savannah. And Savannah College of Art and Design is there. And what if she's a museum curator? Something like that. Because so she had lost her gift, basically, uh, when the story starts and it comes back. And I wanted Cassie to start off in this place where she was a little more meek and timid and not necessarily the star. She was working with a cop and, and with somebody else and had to kind of figure these things out. But I wanted her to grow. You know, I really figured that like Karen writing some of these parts and working the way the dialogue would work and the mindset would work, would work better than me doing it all by myself. I think it really comes through. And what's been really neat about it is part of what I wanted also to happen was for Karen to grow with this character. And, you know, at first when we're like outlining me and Brian outlining, we have a book in 10 minutes. It is like Fiona watched us come up with the idea and premise for book 10 and was just like, what the hell just happened? Like it's, it's like that. We had the whole thing. <laughs> Karen was kind of like pulling the stuff out, right? Like, come on, talk to me. Let's, let's work through this. And she also works on the bear and Mandy stuff with me. And uh, now, you know, I'll, I'll have the ideas and present them. And she's like, no, I think it should be this. 
or maybe we should go this direction. And as the character has become the strong lead, so is she. She has grown in that kind of confidence in what she's doing. So, you know, with her, it was this feeling that I, I felt like I knew her writing was good enough and, and strong and we could work together and build from there. And that if I could get her to grow with it, we could really have something good with the series. Greg uh, was introduced to me by Brian. He had actually had a, somewhat of a Hollywood like engineering background, sound engineering, but had been a cop with Brian. And he was their, um, their forensics guy. And so, you know, we knew with the Briar thing that he would have this, this digital forensics kind of background. And, you know, the first book has a lot of uh, techno, technical Bitcoin and stuff like that. And I think it does kind of lose some people. But I've also gotten comments from, from older readers that are like, this makes sense to me now. The way it's put in this book, I, I kind of get this now. Now I see what blockchain and Bitcoin is. Um, so being able to lean on. I should read that book because I've got no <laughs> yeah, idea. What yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, had ex- I've had explained to me several times. I'm yeah. still like, yeah, I, I, I think don't get it. it. And, and so we kind of <laughs> took the feedback from that and went in more of a direct action kind of format. You know, I think those tend to be the more intelligent. Uh, I hate to say it that way, but uh, the more intelligent thrillers within the lineup. There's more team based. It, it kind of spreads around, and and we do definitely jump uh, within subgenres of that. I mean, one of them is, is straight up a psych thriller. Just to kind of cut you off real fast, but I'm kind of curious how you divide up that kind of a uh, a work real fast. I know we've been kind of going long, so we'll probably wrap it up here in just a minute. But yeah, I got I got a few minutes. I still got a few minutes. Yeah, so it is depending on who it is and the idea that I have already. Uh, sometimes I just kind of want to go with a premise and bounce off. As I've done this, one of the things that I found was going back to that passion, this has completely reinvigorated my passion and creativity for this business. I don't understand why writers sit alone and write. Like there's no TV show where there's just one dude sitting there, one lady sitting there, right? It's a collaborative experience, right? Yeah, even movies. I mean, how many people go through a screenplay and then when they get to that, you know, somewhere in the middle or the final one, there's a couple people going over it and they're revising and you're bouncing ideas because you come up with that fifth or sixth plot twist idea so much faster with two or three people or one person. You know, I have a, a friend who we publish and she and I got together and in three days, we had 25 story concepts and five outlines starting with just an idea. And so to me, I really love that riffing, that going back and forth together. That's been, been so much fun. So when we start, the initial bit is going to be a lot of back and forth on the writing um, until we have a solidified voice or, or somewhat, we kind of figure out how this is going to be. And then I like to let them handle draft and then I handle next. And then we go back to, you know, together with it and then it'll go to an editor and then one or both of us will take go through all the edits uh, and comments and and um, go from there. How do you handle creative conflict? I mean, it, you're going to have different ideas, right? And some there's give and take, and everyone's creative. So this is this is a great question because my new series, uh, the Maddie Castle series, Brian and I, it was a phone call, and we came up with this idea that it would be a, a U.S. marshal who was injured and you know left the marshal service. Uh, but she was a tracker and she worked with a dog and she grew up tracking. And so she would kind of be this like cross continental vigilante with a dog. And um, we had started publishing this young woman, Rebecca, 24 years old. And I was talking to her and I was like, what are your goals? You know, as we're publishing your books, we're taking them over. What are your goals? And she told me, she was like, you know, I need to hit X amount of dollars. And I was like, 
you know, had that saved. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And she goes, that's what I make a year. And if I've got that saved, and it wasn't a great amount. And once I've got that saved, I can leave my job. I was like, okay, can make that happen. And the fact that she was 24 years old and was almost at that goal just really, really impressed me. Her work ethic impressed the hell out of me. Her writing impressed me. So I said to Brian, I was like, what if we bring somebody else in on this and work with them? And he was like, I'm open to that. And so we brought her in and had a call and we told her what the idea was. And this 24-year-old woman with me and Brian sitting there, you know, these guys that are mid-40s, late-40s. And she's like, it's cool. I like this. I like the character, I like the dog. But this really should take place in Pittsburgh. And she's from Pittsburgh. And I think she should have been a cop. And she should be injured and she should be hooked on pain pills and she should be rehabilitating a dog at the same time. And, 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 and we're listening and we got the phone and Brian, you know, Brian is exceptionally good at reading people being a detective so long. He was like, Lee, she just gave us her life. All of this is that trailer park she's talking about. She grew up there. These drug addicts, that's her family. And he was like, let's revamp this. And so we got together and we outlined the first couple books and we got into writing it. And man, it just is like magic. So when it comes to creative differences or anything like that, like there's no ego. Now, if you were to jump into Noble and say, no, you need to do this, this, and this, I'm like, no, that's my baby. You're not talking to me. Right. Yeah, but yeah, right. When yeah, yeah. we collaborate on this, it's I can have a fully fledged idea. But once I bring you in, it starts to become part of you too. Your subconscious gets involved. That character starts living in your head as well. We may see them differently. And when it comes to, you no, know, it should be this way. And it's not me saying that. I just, just prove it. Tell me why. And you could probably persuade me. And I will take risks. I, I will take chances on things and see where it goes. You know, what's the worst? It fails. We just start over. You know, we fix it, whatever it is. So yeah, I, I don't mind that. And I'm, I'm very open to to different ideas and and as long as it makes sense and i think that it's fulfilling what we're trying to the desire we're trying to pull out of the reader what we're trying to fulfill with them then i then i'll take that chance on it and i've been really really pleased with with all the feedback on maddie and i just can't wait till you know we've got five books six books and i can really do my thing with it you know we're co-writing doug and i are co-writing a series and the first book will come out next next month and i have to say i mean it's um you know, everything else I've, I've done some collaborations. Faceless comes out today, which is four of us wrote for tropical authors, but, and, and we've, this, that's the fifth one, I think in that series. But, um, but this is the first one. There's two of us going back and forth. Normally I'm doing it on my own and plotting out and, and coming up with everything. And, uh, one and thing I annoy that, him. and he annoys me, <laughs> but everybody annoys me. So it's, <laughs> he's not special in that regard. What's brilliant about it to me is that there's a slight pressure to be your best and put your best foot forward, right? And because Doug does. So he'll come up with something and I'm like, ah, yeah, that's pretty good. And he'll write a scene and he writes action like so well. So he'll write this action scene and then we're, and we're going back and forth literally from our two characters' perspectives. And uh, so now it's like you have to take a breath every once in a while and think about, okay, we need some background stuff here. We need a little character fill in here because <laughs> otherwise we're just slamming action back and forth every time, trying to one-up each other and everything else. But the plotting, you were talking about how that you're plotting stuff so quickly with that, uh, with a collective mind. Uh, that's one thing I found, you know, we get, whether we're talking live, like on a Zoom call or whether we're doing it over chat and sometimes on Messenger, we plot so quickly between the two of us. It's really been, uh, Amazing. So it's, so it's neat to hear you say yeah, that. I love and, it. Uh, 
Uh, and, and I mean, I, I've done it. Like I said, I've done it with people. It's, I'm not even on the book or writing the book. It's just, it, it's fun to do. And plotting is fun. Yeah. I, I we just, you know, I want to go to a conference sometime where it's like four or five of us just sit around and do nothing. We don't have to go to the end of the show. The, just sit there, drink, come up with storylines, and that's it. You know, kind of how I treat conferences. That's what I mean. <laughs> minus, <laughs> minus the storylines. <laughs> <laughs> if you're gonna be at, if cool. you're gonna be at Nink, I'll, I'll be there for a few days. Oh, we'll be there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. Find, we got we find got, me at the tiki bar. <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah, be we'll, there. We'll we'll meet you there. We'll, we we'll buy you a drink. So yep. so what's next? What's next in the world for you? What's what's what coming up? Coming up, uh, we've got apart from running your yeah, wife around, running her around. Um, Let's see, I've got Savage. The next Savage is coming out. The next Maddie, the next Castle. I've got a new series that's going to be debuting. I think we're going to do that a little bit differently. I think I might launch like the first three successively and, and see what happens with that. And then I'm working with a few new people on the psych thriller stuff. I, I dove into the, the romance well and pulled a couple people out to start coming up with some ideas and some storylines there. I just spoke with podium today podium publishing and uh it's really it's kind of neat because i talked to them nine and a half years ago when it was just james and uh i think it was james and and the other guy just the two of them running it we didn't come to an agreement and um i was a bit i don't know it was different back then i was a much tougher negotiator (laughs) um, (laughs) so it was it was kind of funny when i got an email from somebody there but had a a great talk with them and, and i'm interested in uh Seeing where that goes, it may come up with some kind of exclusive original kind of deal to get to a, a really big name for a narrator, uh, something I've wanted to do for a while. So we'll see where that goes. Um, hoping that Hollywood comes comes through for me sometime. I've got a, I finally got a, re- a really good Hollywood agent who, uh, the guy that sold all their Jack Reacher stuff into Hollywood. So hopefully he's, there's the writer strike right now, but we've got some, some movement there. So. Yeah, just uh, continuing to do this, you know, trying to make, trying to make a lot of writers some money. That's that that you talked about, like the, what the passion part, and that was something I wanted to circle back to. Was the one of the things that that is really important to me now is through the publishing company, through co-writing with people, is I want more people to experience the success and whatever success is to them, whether it's just that they can take an extra vacation or that they can work for themselves, that they can get their spouse out of a job or be a millionaire, you know, whatever, whatever that definition of success is to them. I want to help them achieve that. Like I have a vision of being on Forbes or Inc and having a line of people and being called the millionaire author maker. Like I, you know, I've achieved all this and and I want to continue to see more. There's goals that I still have, but a big part of that now is bringing all these people up. And the best way I ever, I ever heard it put was if, if I'm climbing, you know, if I'm scaling a cliff face, you know, the moment that this, this left hand shoots up to grab the top, that right hand is dropping back and whoever wants to grab hold, come on. Cause I'm pulling you up. And so my, the way that I've always I've done this has always been in that kind of vein. That's awesome. That's great. I love, I love hearing that. So, cause it's, it's nice to see people, there's room, for, yeah, all there us, really right? there There's really room for all of us. So anytime we can help someone, I got a lot of help when I started and, uh, uh from people and, um, I'm, uh, I'm, and I'm, any I'm still helping you. I'm still helping you. He's my crutch every day. He's my crutch every day. All right. Well, let's wrap up with a final question that we have with oh, this, uh, with this little trick we have where we spin a wheel, which oh, makes, we only no. do it because it makes a cool noise. <laughs> and then there's a list of silly questions. List of questions on okay. here. Hold on. I'm, I'm wrapping up. You didn't prep me so. for this. 
I know it's a surprise. Yeah, we got it. The question is, what is the first book to impact you? That's a ridiculously sensible question. We need to take that off of the wheel. I probably do, yeah. What is your question? <laughs> uh, a Wrinkle in Time. When I was a little kid, I was an advanced reader, and I think I first read that like second or third grade, something like that. And Oh, wow, yeah. It's a very good that one. one. Yeah, that one. You know, it's, I haven't listened to it or read it or even watched. I never watched it. I haven't read it in so long. And but just the the pathways that opened up in my brain, the 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 imagination and, and everything that went along with it, just really kind of um, I think expanded my ability for storytelling even at a young age. And then of course, The Shining was. Oh, yeah. I think that yeah. has that impacted me to where I'm at now would have been uh, The Shining for sure. So those two. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. All right cool. That wasn't too bad. Lee, this has been a pleasure yeah, having you on. Yeah. 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 Thanks, for, thanks for joining us and thanks for all the insights. Oh, it was awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, that, was, that was a really fun show. Lee's a really dynamic individual. Great writer, too, man. I'm loving that Rachel Hatch series. I'm telling you, strong female woman there. Like, I like her. She's got a lot of similarities to my Nora Summer character, so I'm, I'm loving reading his books. I'll tell you, you, sh- you guys should get together and do a little crossover. Nora and Rachel kicking ass across the islands. Wouldn't that be fun? That'd be awesome. Well, remember, guys, to subscribe to our show. Go ahead and give us a five-star review if you can. We need all those. Well, give us a one-star. Give us a one-star, and we'll have you on the show and rip you apart. <laughs> right. Everybody's going to be like, we're not going to star them at all. They're such assholes. <laughs> <laughs> but also, just check out the show notes for our links to our books and social media and um, anything else we might have mentioned, and support the show by buying and gifting our books. Absolutely. And our next episode, uh, we have a fantastic guest, USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestselling author, Lisa Reagan. Her uh, Josie Quinn series is a huge hit. She has 16 or 18 books, I think, out in that series. And yeah, and contracted to do another, I think, 16 she just signed up for. Holy cow, that's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, Vanishing (laughs) Girls is the first book in the series, and it's a huge bestseller. Great book. Well, look for our new episodes every two weeks. We'll be back then. And until then, be cool to each other. Fair winds and following seas. You've been listening to the Two Authors Chat Show with Nicholas Harvey and Douglas Pratt.